Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast, non-animal origin cell culture supplements and manufacturing aids for biologics manufacturing. I'm Brandi Sargent, editor of Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Tobias Herzig, Regulatory Affairs Manager, and Dr. Ulrich Tillman, Global Product Manager, Supplements and Manufacturing Aids, both with Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany. I wanted to start today by asking if you could give us a definition of non-animal origin. Is there an industry-wide understanding of the term? I would love to give you a definition for animal origin or an industry-wide definition of for animal origin, free or non-animal origin. Unfortunately, there is no industry-wide definition and there is no useful or clear definition provided by the regulators. The regulators typically provide you a definition for animal origin, but not for non-animal origin. With that in mind, what are the distinctions between primary, secondary, and tertiary levels for non-animal origin? So these, the terms primary, secondary, or tertiary level, non-animal origin or animal origin free, these terms are used to what people try to distinguish how far away they believe the actual origin is. For instance, primary non-animal origin would mean, okay, here is something which is not directly derived from an animal. Secondary non-animal origin would be used when you want to say, okay, here's something, for instance, that has been produced by fermentation, and the fermentation media did not contain any animal origin material. For instance, recombinant insulin produced by bacteria. And then um, if I may use the, the recombinant insulin as an example for tertiary animal origin free, that could be used uh, when you want to say, okay, here is pro-insulin, which needs to be cleaved into insulin by an enzyme. And this enzyme that I'm using is A, not of animal origin, and B, um, also uh, is not coming out of a fermentation which um, had animal origin material in the media. These terms are not fully defined. So if you read about these terms, you want to make sure that you really understand what the author or the user actually wants to tell you. Thank you for that. That's helpful as a basis for our discussion. I was hoping you could also clarify, Tobias, for, for listeners, why is animal origin such a big concern in the cell culture realm? Let me start with why is animal origin a concern? Animal origin is a concern, typically, or the, the typical concern are adventitious agents coming with that animal material. There are, however, other concerns. For instance, there could be religious concerns, halal kosher concerns around the animal origin. There could be lifestyle concerns. If you think about vegan wave, allergies are a topic. However, these could also, allergies are also a topic for, for instance, plant-derived proteins. But the major issue are adventitious agents, which could be zoonotic, so they could cross the species barrier from the animal to the human, to the patient, and cause a disease with that patient. Um, these adventitious agents might be viruses. For instance, SARS or rabies are viruses that are known to cross the species barrier or uh, protein-based agents like um, the, the prions that causing TSE, BSE. 
other concerns are related to the supply situation. So getting animal origin raw material, importing that into your country could be associated with restrictions. Likewise, if you have a media produced which contains animal material, that might also be import restricted into the country where your customer is sitting. With regard to the cell culture, there is uh, an, another concern, and that is these the cells, the mammalian cell culture might be susceptible to such viruses. And if you are running a, or if you wish to run a, a bioreactor under GMP conditions, you need to tightly control your bioreactor. And a virus might have a whatsoever effect to your cell culture. And from that point on, your cell culture would not be regarded as GMP compliant. We talked a little bit about the fact that there isn't a uh, regulatory definition of non-animal origin, but I'm hoping that you could share with us what the regulatory view on non-animal origin components is. The regulatory view on non-animal components is, of course, that this is the preferred situation. Um, as a regulatory person, you would like to avoid animal material whenever possible, or you would expect that animal material to comply with all the pertinent regulations. With regard to non-animal materials, and as a regulatory person, I feel that um, as much as I appreciate it, I always feel cautious because I don't want to do any wishful thinking and due diligence is always required around those non-animal materials. Don't get blindfolded around the, the documentation. You, you truly want to understand why this material is non-animal origin. So keep your eyes open, keep your mind open, work with your suppliers as closely as possible to truly understand when they're talking about non-animal origin, is that exactly what you want to have, what you think non-animal origin is to avoid any ambiguity, any confusion, and at the end, um, later disappointment. I also feel like um, it's always worthwhile when you're auditing your vendors to question the, the animal or non-animal origin situation and to make sure that your suppliers are in fact producing as you wish them to do. That makes a lot of sense. And I wanted to uh, switch uh, gears a little bit here and ask you, Ulrich, if you could talk about which products in your portfolio are of non-animal origin and also how much insight do you have into the manufacturing process of these supplements? So um, my portfolio historically started out as being composed of animal origin um, because in the old days, a lot of people just uh, sourced these components from, produced them from serum. Uh, in the meantime, I have uh, as a new wave, the recombinant supplements, which mirror the formerly serum-sourced um, and contributed supplements. So, for instance, uh, we have, uh, instead of using fetal bovine serum or any animal serum, we have serum components that are 
produce recombinantly, such as transferrin or albumin or growth factors, uh, to uh, just name a few, like insulin or long R3. Uh, and also on the, on the side of the manufacturing agents, uh, in the old days, people relied, for instance, on porcine trypsin. And in the meantime, we have a complete portfolio of recombinant trypsin, um, which we offer in, in various, various uh, grades. So uh, manufacturing aids is something that is typically subsumized under supplements, but it's not really always a supplement, but a manufacturing process enzyme. The collection of these recombinant enzymes uh, is um, labeled as cell prime recombinant supplements and everything in my portfolio that starts with cell prime is thus a recombinant and NAO supplement. Just to clarify, uh, would it be possible to define for listeners what long R3 is? Sure. Uh, long R3 is a derivative of the IGF-1 growth factor, which is a growth factor that uh, aids in uh, the growth of cells, prevents apoptosis, and uh, also helps in the utilization of uh, the resources in the medium, such as the amino acids or the uh, carbon sources like the glucose. And it is similar in its action as the insulin. Uh, actually, there is a crosstalk on the receptors and also the genetic makeup of the cells and what kind of receptors they have on the surface determines if they respond better to long R3 or to recombinant insulin. The long part of the uh, R3 part is the IGF is uh, recombinantly expressed with a 13 amino acid extension at the end terminus, uh, which comes from the way it is being produced. And the R3 uh, denotes a substitution uh, at amino acid position number three uh, of an arginine. And that is the amino acid position three of the natural IGF uh, that is replaced. And what it does is it prevents uh, the binding of proteins that typically sequester and bind natural IGF. And that makes long R3 a much more stable uh, growth factor that you can use in much, much lower concentrations than IGF. It is much more stable and therefore, uh, since you use it in very small amounts, uh, very efficient uh, substitution of IGF. Could you tell us how these supplements are being used? The supplements are being used um, as raw materials for the manufacturing of cell culture media. For instance, uh, typical growth factors like uh, recombinant insulin or long R3 are added to the cell culture media either by the manufacturer in the formulation or they are added as standalone uh, to a medium that customers typically source and they add it on their own from a standalone product and then add it to the media shortly before use. Other ones of our cell prime recombinant proteins are used to uh, 
manufacture media for applications such as cell therapy, which is very close to humans, where you basically expand the cell population that you then in, uh, infuse into the patient. Another use is the aforementioned manufacturing processing enzymes to be as mentioned, for instance, the trypsin that is used in the course of the manufacturing of recombinant therapeutic insulin, that was typically carried out before using either bovine or porcine trypsin. And today in, in the market, all the worldwide producing bigger companies are now at a stage where they try to replace porcine trypsin whenever possible and use recombinant trypsin instead. Could you share with us, are there differences between monoclonal antibody and recombinant protein manufacturing versus regenerative medicine gene therapy and vaccine manufacturing when it comes to the supplements used? Yes. In the typical monoclonal antibody or recombinant protein process, you are talking about a large-scale process of thousands of liters of cell culture media, and people have been trying to reduce any, any extraneous components in those media and also in, in the process of recovering the product from those media. It is important to not have any other proteinase agents in there that are, for instance, contributed by the serum and might complicate the, the purification process. So in those applications uh, where you have large-scale media for production of monoclonal antibodies or other recombinant proteins such as uh, coagulation factors, it is mostly the growth factors, uh, recombinant insulin and or uh, long R3, which support the growth, uh, the health and the production of the desired product. On a smaller scale in um, the cell therapy um, realm, you, you typically have been using serum components just in, in lack of, of other suitable replacements, and people are slowly getting around to using recombinant supplements in there as well, and also manufacturing aids. For instance, if you think about the extension of mesenchymal stem cells, some of these products, uh, cells still grow on supports and need to be split off these plastic supports or off uh, microbeads uh, that they grow on. And in order to extend these populations, you have to go through the routine of splitting those cells. And in order to keep the risk low, uh, the recombinant trypsin is used in this case as Thank you for that. And I wanted to address something that we hear sometimes in the industry, which is that plant-derived supplements are the answer to all of the industry's woes. Uh, could you address that statement or that belief that we, we sometimes hear? Yes. People always think when something comes from a plant, it is automatically non-animal origin, which obviously it being plant-derived implies that. But you have to closely look at the whole uh, manufacturing process, uh, at all the chemicals that are used in that process. And also, uh, since a lot of these uh, products are grown in the field under, under controlled conditions, you have to look at how controlled are these conditions. Are there possibilities of 
for instance, sheddings from animals, either birds or, let's say, fox or cows, whatever, even humans, that might introduce some contamination in an otherwise plant-derived environment. So it is not the cure of all woes. I wanted to uh, ask if there's a difference in performance, uh, do you think, between the non-animal origin and the animal origin uh, supplements? Uh, we don't think that there is a, a difference in performance, but as I mentioned before, if you use, for instance, a certain percentage of serum in your medium, besides the fact that, that you have a potential source of contamination with some of these undesirable agents, you also introduce a load of protein that you don't want to have in your process when you're trying to uh, purify away your desired product. But in terms of performance, uh, if you have your supplements at the right concentration, which of course is different from cell to cell and cell line uh, and expression system, then uh, you can titrate those and figure out what the right concentration is. Uh, for that, we typically supply samples and customers use them on their own for making up their own uh, formulation. Or we also offer cell culture medium, such as uh, the Cellmental series, like uh, standalone catalog medium that contain already a certain level of these growth factors. And that works well for customers to get them started. Of course, uh, we also do custom formulations according to customer recipe if they have that. And in there, they typically specify that they want to have a non-animal origin growth factor or be the transport protein or something like that, uh, recombinant albumin or transferrin, depending on what the application is. What are some of the challenges to developing the non-animal origin supplements? Uh, the biggest challenge is to figure out if you really have a complete visibility on the manufacturing process of your uh, non-animal origin component. So uh, we rely on certain suppliers for some of our non-animal origin supplements and also manufacturing aids. And Typically, your analysis of the level of non-animal origin is as good as the thoroughness with which you have audited your supplier or in to the degree to which you understand all the details of the chemicals used or the production facility, whatever they use in the process, all that comes together and, and forms the basis for your assessment of what degree of non-animal origin you are talking about. So in general, when we talk about NAO, we have a certain definition, for instance, that there are no animal components in, in our cell lines that we use or in uh, the media or the chemicals, that there is no use of animal origin components in the manufacturing process and or in the facility that there is no shared equipment uh, with animal origin materials and uh, that there is no contact with any components that come into the facility other than the units that are necessary as operators. 
Thank you for that um, description. I think that's really helpful. Do you have anything else that either of you would like to add for our listeners today? I really appreciate your time. And I think this has been really an interesting discussion. And I wanted to just see if there's anything else that you would like to add. I let uh, Tobias go first. Keep your eyes open. Sometimes I feel like people are too easy when they read non-animal origin. Non-animal origin is not a reason to not thoroughly um, understand the process of your vendors and what you are doing with that material. Um, it always uh, you should always apply the precautionary principle. That's pretty much what I have to say. And since there's so many definitions of animal origin free or animal component free or blood free or whatever you have out there. It is really important to understand what a supplier of these agents understands by the definition. And typically, you can find out uh, by either asking uh, a supplier to give you a thorough uh, view on how they define animal origin free or animal component free. And typically, if you want to include such an agent in your process, you're well advised to uh, do a thorough audit at the manufacturer's site or to at least do a thorough paper audit to convince yourself that their definition of non-animal origin concurs with what you had in mind. Great. Thank you so much for that. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful to talk to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.